Hey everybody, it is episode 105 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Today I have two very special guests that I'm excited to interview. We're actually going to be continuing our series or discussions on trail running. And so I've got true two trail running gods of sorts in front of me here. Jason Brooks, who was on us on with me in episode 94 when we did our first episode really on the details of trail and episode number three guest now almost two years later here paul terranova the ultra running icon here from austin texas welcome to the show guys thank you thank you excited excited to have you on we're going to be digging in with both of you more on trail probably spending a little bit more time today talking about nutrition and hydration strategies for long trail events that would also be applicable to i guess other long endurance events and paul has some background in ironman triathlon so we'll bring in some of that expertise as well i've got my water and my coffee already your hydration tools are all ready post run no pack today but you've got double fisting there so but of course before we dive into that and talk about trail in more depth we've got some current events to cover the first is trail relevant We don't talk a ton about trail in these intros, but I think since you guys are on, it's time to talk about it. And this really isn't trail. It's more ultra focused, but certainly the athletes that were mentioned are are badasses on the trail as well. But recently at the desert solstice, 24 hour event, 12 and 24 hour event, Camille Heron, who is a ultra running goddess in that world, broke the U.S. 24-hour record for distance as well as the time record for 100 miles on her journey to that 24-hour record. She finished 100 miles on that day in 13 hours and 25 minutes, beating the previous record by about 20 minutes. And then she finished her distance for 24 hours was 162.9 miles in 24 hours. That was actually done on a track. So she ran 652 laps. (laughs) of a track to get that record her average pace for the entire 24 hours was 850 so 8 minutes 50 seconds for 24 hours she beat all the men by the way on the day as well both in the 24 hour and the tw- and 12 hour events she was ahead at both points so really really impressive from Camille wanted to get y'all's reactions on this we'll start with you Paul yeah, we watched uh, a little bit of it uh, on the big screen at at home uh, from the computer, Meredith and I. So yeah, watching watching them come around the the track each time, and it was middle of the day, and then starting to get sunset. And uh, yeah, she just kept chugging along, and that was that was really good to watch and steady. And she's good at those things, and uh, <laughs> so she, yeah, she can she can really pull it off. Uh, uh, at those, so hats off to her. You've met Camille, right? Yes. What's she like? Is she, you know, is she the Yoda of trail? Is, I mean, what's her demeanor? She what does is it take fun and together? quirky and bubbly <laughs> and energetic, and uh, it's always a kick to uh, to run into her. And so her, I think her personality really comes through on uh, social media as well, and. Uh, Hater or lover, right? She's uh, got a lot of spirit and spunk, and she's always been encouraging to me and Meredith. And so, um, yeah, it's fun. It's fun to see her do well. 
So reading the recap, it seemed like she was just pretty consistent the entire time. It sounded like she had a, a, a shoe change at one point, and then it took her. She lap. She walked a couple of laps, kind of get started after that. But other than that, it was just slow and steady. Yeah, when she's on, she is on. Uh, just like we saw at uh, her run at Tunnel Hill, that just yeah, when when things are clicking for her, uh, watch out. Yeah, Jason, what are your thoughts on watching and seeing that? It's impressive. I can't imagine spending that much time running circles on a track. <laughs> uh, <laughs> definitely not why I got into ultra running at all. Uh, but I like to see these records go down. I, I shared a few miles with Camila Bandera in January this year, where she run the 100K Trail Championship. So she's definitely been on a mission between comrades winning the 100K Trail Championship. Uh, setting a 100-mile record at Tunnel Hill and now Desert Solstice. So it's pretty impressive to watch her. She's unbelievable. And, and yeah, you, you fo- if you follow her on social media, she's very open about her training methodologies. I know I saw a recent tweet where she said something to the effect of, everybody asked me where my, my long doubles are, like the back-to-back runs on a weekend or something. And she said she doesn't do them. You know, a lot of, most of the time her longest run during the week is 20 to 24 miles. And she just consistently bangs that stuff out. And so there's no real magic here. I don't think in her formula, but just being consistent badass. <laughs> so, yeah, when you have a great engine like she does and a really good base of fitness to build upon that, uh, it doesn't take much to peak for a big event like that. So that's our token trail current event. We've got a little bit yeah. also speaking of marathons, not ultra marathons. We've got to talk about Boston for a brief second. Boston announced its fields this week. I do love the way they do it. They typically kind of release their fields in three phases. First, they confirm whether or not the defending champions are going to come back. And it is confirmed that Des will be back to defend her title as well as Citizens champion Yuki Kawauchi from De- Japan will be back to defend his title after a crazy Boston this year in 2018 with the weather. And then they released the rest of the U.S. field. And then next week, which which came out this week, and then next week they will release the international field as well. And so we've got some things to get excited about here i i would say that my first reaction in looking at these fields is that it's not quite as stacked as the field looked so far from a u.s standpoint as the field was this past year because this past year you had chelaine you had molly you had des you had jordan assay on the women's side on the men's side you had rup and a host of others that uh, could be competitive this year, the field isn't quite that same depth, but still really, really solid. And I think some interesting matchups. A Shalane for her, for her, you know, next step is not doing Boston. So, so that was one thing is that she wasn't on this list, which kind of continues to have us doubt as to whether Shalane is actually going to be retired or not. But she's not showing up. But you do have Jordan Assay coming back hopefully as her first marathon post a couple of injuries after dropping out of both Boston and Chicago. Got Des Linden also, of course, defending her title. Sarah Hall, this will be her first time to run Boston, which is going to be really interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how she stacks up against Jordan and Des as somebody who could be a threat to make the team in 2020. And you've got Lindsey Flanagan, Becky Wade, Sarah Crouch, and Sarah Sellers, who got second last year 
to Des in that, again, crazy weather. So an interesting field, I think, particularly for those top three. Jordan to see if she can come back and bounce back from injury. Des to see what she can do in defending her title. And then Sarah Hall competing in Boston for the first time. I'd love to see her mix it up with the best of the best. And I think she will, especially knowing how her husband Ryan and now coach approached this course as aggressively as he did when he had his opportunities to run it. On the men's side, you've got Dathan Ritzenhain also trying to come back from kind of a series of injuries. Abdi Abdi Abdurrahman, who ran New York. Jared Ward, who was the top American in New York. You've got Elkana Kibet from the Scott Simmons group. Tim Ritchie, Shadrach Biwat, who got third in Boston last year behind Drafi Karui, Aaron Braun, and Brian Schrader. So, and and I should mention Scott Fobble. I think I, he was second uh, in New York this year of the Americans. And so it's an interesting field there. I think pretty evenly matched on the American men's side. No real clear favorites there. A bunch of guys that we know can run between 312 and 313, depending on what Ritz can do. If he can come back, he's got a little faster PR. So it'll be interesting to see what you have from this field. Personally, I like Scott Fobble from that list as somebody who got second American in New York, who I think could come come and bounce back for a strong performance here. If I were going to give my my early opinions about it but otherwise of course we'll break all of that down as we get closer to boston and i'm already working on my press credentials for that hopefully we'll be able to get into the 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 press conferences like we did in new york so that's the quick update on boston we'll hear the about the international fields next week in which case we'll do a little bit more of a preview and and early stage predictions before of course, we do our, our more full predictions as we get closer to the race. So there you go. That's what we've got look, look, to look forward to in spring marathons. Beyond that, I wanted to jump in with you guys and talk about trail. First, I wanted to give a little bit more complete intro of Paul to remind people who maybe haven't listened to episode three in a while of Paul's background. I want to, so just as, as the high, as the highlights, you're a, Paul's a two-time top 10 finisher at Western States. He's been the U.S. 100-mile trail champion, has also been named the U.S. Trail Masters Runner of the Year and done some fun things like just won his first 100-miler outright here at the Chattanooga 100 after coming back from stress fracture. Paul is a guy that I've known since 2004, back when he wasn't running on the trail and, and wasn't doing ultras, was primarily doing road racing and Ironman triathlons at the time. And I learned early on back then when we were working on the track with Al Shippafools here in Austin that if you were ever behind, or sorry, ever in front of Paul in a workout, that was because he wanted you to be, not because <laughs> you were actually fitter or faster than Paul. I remember the first race where we, where we both lined up together. It was the 3M half shortly after we met, I think in January of 2005, if I remember right. And... Somehow I beat you that day and was feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like, man, you know, Paul's been kicking my ass in workouts, but somehow I, I beat him today here at 3M in, in the half. And and then I ran into you getting on the bus as because that's a point-to-point race. And so you take a bus back to the start. Ran into you getting back on the bus and 
the hey you know how's your day paul trying to hide my gloating and you know and he's like man i got the flu or something i've been sick all week <laughs> and so <laughs> he came out still crushed the race he wasn't that far behind me and so i suddenly you know my ego just went to the wayside and <laughs> and uh that that solidified for me that paul was always going to be uh, the stronger runner and since then we've had a lot of opportunities to train together which is always a pleasure because Paul keeps me honest and kicks my ass but but I wanted to share that anecdote before we dive in also before we dive in Paul I wanted to get your take on your recent injury so you you generally have been a pretty healthy runner yes I've been really fortunate to but but had a stress fracture recently and came back from that to get a win in a hundred miler talk about that tell, tell us a little bit more it has been a the last six months, yeah, certainly the journey from right the presentation of pain in late May and really took all of June and into July to to finally figure out exactly what was going on and uh yeah, stress fracture mid femur, right femur, uh lateral and a little bit proximal, and so it's not a very common injury. Uh in runners, if at all, right, you see it in military recruits right who just ramping up their physical exercise for the first time and then first time marathoners right of which i'm neither and uh it wasn't until doing once i got back to ground running and did a gait analysis at run lab here to right tease out the root cause um some hip imbalances that had just accumulated over time from some tight hamstrings and things like that and really easy fix to get it get it fixed so that i don't uh, do it again in in the future. So since then, running has been great, right? The hardest part was, I think, having a punt right on Western States and then Collegiate Peaks Loop uh, FKT attempt with a buddy, Nick Petitella in Colorado, and then have to bail on Tour de Gens in Italy in September. So those, yeah, once I think got through the uh, uh, emotional roller coaster of having to cancel some pretty cool plans, uh this summer um yeah just get back to it and start building up uh volume consistently and get a lot of 45 minute runs hour runs hour 15 runs uh not a lot of intensity but just building up that muscle memory yeah stress fractures are interesting injuries i've had a couple myself on one hand they're nice in terms of running injuries because once you know you have it there's a fairly defined timeline to sort of address it stay off of it and then build back gradually versus some of these soft tissue injuries or nerve issues that might just linger for a long time or you might have trouble kicking and so in that way it's it's nice because it's well defined but the tricky part is as you alluded to is that trying to figure out why it happened so that it doesn't come back and happen again so Talk about, you know, you kind of highlighted that a little bit with your work with Run Lab. What did you learn from that? And, you know, what are you doing now to prevent those root causes? Yeah, the first thing, right, in the asking the five whys, right, to get down to the root cause of what it was. And I reached out to all sorts of biomechanical experts at different universities that had done research papers, right, to try and find a, a linkage between right, whether it's tight tight hamstrings or stride length uh, and injuries, right, but all my research there led to 
that shorter, shorter stride generally leads to less impact on, uh, on our limbs. So that was a dead end. And uh, then also looking at training stresses and things like that and volume. But comparing it to my buildups the previous uh, five times for Western States, there really wasn't a big difference in volume or elevation or periods between races. So that wasn't a, a good answer for me. And then it was, hey, let's let's get some biomechanical uh, feedback uh, for it so that, yeah, you don't repeat it in the future. And so now what that looks like, right, it's just running a little bit wider, maybe an eighth of an inch each side, uh, doing there is a really good period of hip mobility, uh, strength on the hip rotary machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to strengthen up the hips and real, really just keep that hip line level. So there's a good amount of conscious thought into my running these days and then pushing off with my toes as well. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, as somebody who's had a lot of success running, who's, cha- who's trained relatively injury-free for a long time, when these things pop up, you're sort of like, what the hell happened? Because, you know, you think you're doing all the things right. You haven't changed things dramatically. And then suddenly you have this big injury. Happened to me similarly with a heel stress fracture a couple of years ago at Boston or leading into Boston and then at Boston. And I had all the same questions. But what you don't realize is that you do accumulate these sort of little imbalances, little sort of overuse issues that might pop up that can come at you like in sort of stealth mode <laughs> and then here they are <laughs> in like right in your face uh, with the stress fracture but it's just a good reminder that we're all potentially susceptible and you got to stay on top of all those little things all the time to try to keep that stuff at bay and then even still it might happen and then when it happens is what you do is you learn you get stronger and then you go win a hundred miler, you know, your first outright win and a hundred miler coming off that injury, which is really, really cool. How did that feel? That felt amazing, right? There was certainly a lot of pent up race preparation and planning that had gone into right Western States, which didn't happen. Uh, so then to be able to really think about, Chattanooga 100 or just my next race whatever that was going to be which at first I thought was going to be hurt 100 in January because I got into the lottery for that but then when I realized I needed UTMB points for 2019 that Chattanooga 100 appeared on the radar as the last domestic race that had five or more ITRA points for UTMB So that's when it popped on the radar. And, yeah, to be able to put it all together, legs felt great, planning felt great. Uh, It's just a dream come true to have that six-month window um, or that chapter just to end like that. Storybook (laughs) a little bit, which is awesome. It is. It is, and I'm really thankful. And just the sense of gratitude that whole day into the night to be healthy and be running and yeah so so thankful for that so quickly recapping a little bit on episode 94 where we had jason join us that was really sort of a we started with a case for trail there 
sort of why should people consider trail if they're maybe doing a bunch of road stuff or doing road marathons. Interestingly, I signed up for my first 50 miler uh, in Squamish next August. Nice. Which I'm excited about sort of on the backs of that episode, switching gears a little bit over next summer to get off the roads and do some trails. So you guys can coach me up on that. But we started with the case for trail. Then we kind of gave an overview of the key elements that people need to think about when they make that transition to trail training. And today we're going to drill in a little bit more on those elements. But I wanted to start simply with a question for you, Paul, to answer that first question. Jason and I both got the chance to answer it last episode, episode 94. But what's your case for trail? You're you're a guy who's done road racing. You've done Ironmans. You've done a mix of things, but now kind of have landed primarily on trail running as your main sport. So what did, what did it mean? What does it mean for you and why have you made that shift over time? Trail running for me has been that opportunity every day uh, to disconnect somewhat from how complicated life and work can be on a day, day-to-day basis and to really get that escape and that time in nature that I wasn't always getting in triathlon uh, or road running, right? When you're, when you're running in an urban environment uh, built up and, right, there's cars and bikes and scooters and traffic lights and things like that, that the chance to get out on the trail either with friends or our dog uh, and, just, and just be out there unplugged right with no phone and no email access that that's something that has really appealed to me and so even if i'm not running trail every single day it's it's definitely something that i look forward to yeah and you still do road you still do road work yes yeah probably about 50 percent on average is still on the road and it might be a combination where i'm on the road and then i'm on the trail and then i'm back on the road uh, whether it's an out and back or a big loop. So try and link up a couple of our green belt spots with some with some road and some hill work in between. Yep. You've always done a good job of maintaining that speed and turnover by keeping that road stuff going. As we now segue into the topic today, I was just sort of drilling into the details of trail running. We wanted to frame it. This is where I'll bring you in, Jason, with this idea that for those that are attempting ultras, the, the areas where they fail or finish or, might, or, or that might cause them to, to drop out or not have a good experience are pretty well studied and documented in that world. And so there's a particular study and, you know, or at least body research that has been pulled together by Jason Coop who can kind of highlight for us where people, where it goes wrong. So we wanted to use that as sort of a starting point to then talk about how to make it go right for you those that are out there going to try trail so i'm going to let you tee that up jason what do we learn from the data on what causes people to fail in trail yeah so um there hasn't been a lot of writing and research on ultra running in the way that cycling and uh, road running is really covered well and so jason coop wrote a book training essentials for ultra marathon i referenced this in the last uh, podcast we did and one of the i think really interesting things that came out of his book is this idea of failure points. And uh, we'll get into a lot of reasons about why some of this is unique to ultra running. Um, There was some field research done, exit surveys on athletes leaving Western states. And they looked at two 
two different elements. First was um, reported reasons why athletes struggled at some point in the race. Uh, and then they look specifically at self-reported reasons why athletes dropped out of the race. And so um, basically what you see is that, so the, I'll just give you the top seven reported struggles for runners because pretty much everything else is relegated to illness and, and injury. So uh, the first thing that came up was blisters, nausea and or vomiting, which we can just call GI distress, muscle pain, exhaustion, inadequate heat acclimation, inadequately trained in muscle cramping. Uh, so then the self-reported reasons for dropping, and we'll just hit like the top three here, but you had nausea and, and or vomiting. That was 23% of runners. Uh, unable to make cutoffs was another 18%. And then there was a kind of other category that captured about 12% of people. And then when you get down to the bottom of the list of 14 reported reasons, 0.7% reported inadequately trained. And what the key insight that I think Coop offers here is to say, well, uh, actually that list should be sort of inverted and you can train all of these failure points as he calls them. And, uh, so you would really want to put sort of inadequately trained up at the top of that list and say, you know, you weren't either physiologically or mentally prepared. You weren't physically prepared. You hadn't done what you needed to do to figure out a good nutrition and hydration strategy. You didn't practice it during your training. Uh, you didn't experiment. And so these are kind of some of the things we can get into today is how, you know, training and especially the trail is sort of a laboratory for an ultra athlete. You're constantly experimenting with race strategies, training strategies, gear strategies, nutrition and hydration strategies. And then we can kind of get into why some of these things are so important and come up as issues uh, in ultra running as we move forward. Yeah. Yeah. In general, right. I think of um, ultras as. 30% or a third physical, a third mental, and a third logistical. As far Planning. as the plan, right? In each Good race, maybe a little bit more physical or a little bit more logistics. But in general, if you think about it, in in those three slices, right? The physical side, the mental side, and just the logistical planning side of what you're going to need. And whether it's clothes or food or access and directions for your crew and things like that. So. Yeah. And Paul is Paul is famous as an engineer by by original degree from Cornell for these massive binders. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, right. You gotta have like it. Planning binders, and I'm not talking about a binder that might have ten races worth of information in it. I'm talking about a binder per race with all the gory details about his plan going into that race. As I've known you, Paul, I think. Trail running is as much about solving a problem, like an engineering problem, based you know planning, and then executing it, than it is about anything else for you, which is fun to watch. But yeah, so if you're if you ever if there's a race you want to run and you know Paul, just ask him for his binder. If you know Paul, if you know Paul has done it, he's got a binder for it that has all the details and planning in it. Yeah, and we're happy to share. I know we've. We sent uh, our TDS binder to our friend uh, John Diana, who did uh, TDS last year, and uh, he was able to use all that in information for Europe uh, for his race. And I think I got a, a Facebook message last night uh, from somebody who's doing Lake Sonoma 50 for the first time, and 
I know I've got uh, at least one binder and <laughs> a couple of binder clips worth of uh, course notes on that one. So I'll definitely share that with him. Yeah. And I used all of your Bandera training camp notes for uh, oh, Bandera yeah. this year. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some good notes on uh, Bandera training camp yeah. and Western States training camp uh, and the race itself, having done it five times. So it's oh. always fun to revisit those and look back and then be able to plan something forward and help out other people too i'll need your squamish binder for sure yes we have that <laughs> as well i'm surprised that you didn't sign up for the 50 50 that's a good little uh, double right there yeah steps <laughs> that sounds like too much we're gonna start with one ultra all right well gary robbins he'll treat you right up there yeah and all right so i want to dig into some of these failure points kind of talk about it because i think there's there's some physical, some mental, and some planning-related elements involved in all of these, and we'll kind of start small, so to speak, on hopefully the things that are easier to pick off and then work our way towards the big item here, which, as we kind of talked about in planning, is sort of nutrition and hydration strategy. If you don't get that right and if you're not trained for what you're going to use out there and you don't plan it well, then you're pretty much done before you start. But there's some other things kind of leading up to that that are also important. You mentioned blisters as an issue first on that list, or at least first on the list that you read. Talk about that, because I don't even know, as a road runner, I don't typically have to worry about that. You know, you might end up with some blisters in a marathon or a black toenail afterwards, but it's something, because the timeline is so short, that doesn't really ever affect your performance. But obviously in an ultra, it could take you out if you, f if you don't properly take care of your feet. So we'll start with you, Paul. What, what are the things to think about there? You know, at what point do you think about changing shoes, changing socks? You know, how does all that stuff come into play? Because I just frankly have no idea. Yeah, I, I feel for one, it's that this also falls into the category of inadequate training, right? Because if you're not if you haven't trained enough or in the right conditions, then your feet aren't going to be tempered and hardened and calloused in the right places for you to do the event that you're training to do. So, right, hey, on your training run, if there's a creek, maybe not step over right <laughs> and, and skip over the water and the rocks. Maybe get your feet wet because yep. it might be raining and just pouring buckets on race day and you might have to run with wet feet for 6, 10, 12, 14 hours, whatever it may be, uh, that, hey, had you done that during training, right, your feet would know what that feels like and, right, toughen up as uh, a, a result of that. And so to some degree, just like training is a, a, a stimulus for our, our cardiovascular and, and uh, muscular system, we can do things like that that is the stimulus for our feet to harden up in the right places. Terrain, too, as well, right? If you have steep ups, steep downs, all of that's going to affect where your feet get the hot spots on race day. So you got to be ready to practice on that same kind of terrain, right? Yes. Yeah, that, too, uh, with the heat, you know, and, and get comfortable with right with your socks and your shoe setup. What's the right thickness? Yep. For that, are you a thin a thin sock person, a thick sock person? Get your shoe fitness right. Uh, shoelace tension, right? How tight do you like your shoes? Do they loosen up? 
over time after you've been running for three hours or four hours. So figuring all that out in ad advance is uh, one of those things that really helps. And for me, if I can go without shoes and a, a shoe and sock change, all the better, right? Because, right, that just takes time. Definitely. You're going to be sitting there doing it. So Chattanooga 100, right? Same pair of Dry Max socks and same pair of Hoka Speed Go 2s the whole, the whole time. Didn't even, right, have to tighten up my shoes or anything like that because I knew that it was going to be wet uh, all day. So kind of just gave them a little extra cinch uh, and double knot uh, before the race, just knowing that when they get wet, right, they loosen up just a little bit. So if you start with them tight, then you're not going to have a problem later on. So how does that affect shoe size? You know, I've heard people say, well, your feet might swell and you might need to size up a little bit or change to a bigger size later in a race if that's an issue for you. So talk about that piece of it. Are you sizing up or not? For sure. When I started uh, hundreds in 2012, I did have that problem, right, that my feet would swell up a little bit and I'd either have to go to a thinner sock or a thinner insole or a combination of both. But then I found in the years after that that I really didn't have that problem. So I don't know if that's something that's uh, particular to just me or if other runners have that issue as well. So now I always opt for a little, a little extra space uh, in my shoes, and I'm a 13, so I can't really go much bigger without <laughs> going to a 14. Yeah, without special uh, so <laughs> What about you, Jason? How do you think about blisters and footwear? Uh, so I did, my, my feet went up, or my shoe size went up about a half a size when I started running 50Ks. Um, that would have been around 2007 or 8, and... Um, I've stayed there since then. I like a little bit of a wide toe box. I don't really experience a lot of swelling, and I really don't like to change shoes or socks in a race, although when I do, it feels awesome. Um, so I'll do it like if I end up uh, in ankle-deep mud and muck, and I know my feet and socks are, or my shoes and socks are just full of mud and rocks and shit, then you got to get it out of there because if you get any kind of debris inside of your shoe or worst case inside of your sock, that's going to create a friction point. And so you're going to get a hot spot there. Um, you know, let's touch on some of the points we covered, you know, so rocky terrain is going to create a lot more friction as your foot moves around inside of your shoe, as you, as you're just really, on a really unstable ground surface and then running up and downhill is going to make it worse. I am a prolific sweater. So whether it's summer and the creeks around Austin are, are dry or it's the spring, winter or fall and the creeks are full, I am always wet. My feet are always wet. So I pretty much like... 50% of my trail running is in wet shoes and I just do it. I do it so that I figure out how I can kind of overcome that. And so now it's just like second nature. I make sure I have shoes that drain really well. So I never wear Gore-Tex. I don't really get into mountain running shoes. Like as much as I like La Sportiva, their shoes just don't drain as well. A lot of shoes aren't designed to be wet all the time. And so you, that's something to really take into consideration. Um, Socks, I like a left-right specific sock that is really designed to fit the foot well. So like a stance sock is, I'm really big on that. And I like a high sock 
that comes up above my ankle so that I can really, really mitigate the possibility that any kind of debris gets inside my sock. So then it's just in my shoe and I have a little bit more of a barrier. I can get on for a while like that. And, um, and so then it's, it is just a matter of you got to make sure you spend time in those shoes running. Don't wear, make sure your shoes are well worn. I mean, at Bandera this year, I actually got blisters for the first time that I've ever had blisters at a race or really running. And I had a new pair of Hoka's, but I had put like 80 miles on them. I thought I would be good to go. And it turns out just they weren't broken in enough. And I, and so then you're always kind of running that fine line. Like I'm going to put a hundred miles on these shoes today. So I'll make sure they're, they're good. Right. But, but, but they also so need warm. to be broken in. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you got to kind of play with balances like that, and, and that's uh, where I fall out on it. Well, you, but I would assume no matter what, you're bringing spare shoes, socks, just in case something happens. Yeah, right? and, y- and you need some blister treatment kit, too. So you're going to want to have uh, some kind of either Band-Aid or uh, moleskin protection with you, and and that's going to depend on what kind of event you're out on, whether you're out for a long time on the trail by yourself and so you're carrying that kind of equipment or you maybe keep it in your drop bags. Your crew has some different things that you can use, but like cause some scissors will be nice if you want to cut anything off um, in order to better protect yourself and think about like anything you have it needs to be waterproof (laughs) it's like a waterproof band-aid which will stick well for a while and you may have to continually work through those treatments as you go throughout the race but an untreated uh, foot injury like that is going to be it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until the point where you just can't run anymore because you're you're limping and now you're exposing yourself to some other kind of injury so maybe you reported dropping out because of an injury in your right hip but that injury stemmed from this blister that you had on your foot that you either didn't treat well or it just got to you in the end. And worst case, right, to to mitigate if you do end up in a situation with a blister that you didn't expect, right, if you carry a little tube of Aquaphor, or, right, it's just a little thing of petroleum jelly, right, if, you're, if your lips get chapped or something like that, you have that with you. But you could also just just kind of put some lube down there real quick and, kind of maybe get you to that next aid station where you do have uh either a change of shoes or blister care kit or something like that but that's always something that can just help ease that friction just a little bit yeah uh and get you through that's a great point so the theme you'll see across all these failure points is that when it comes to ultra running it's you you're so much more exposed to problems because of the duration of the event that you're engaged in. And so you don't want to let anything linger. Like if you recognize something's coming up, nip it in the bud as soon as possible, even if that is like a temporary solution to get you to the next point where you can treat it in more depth. But you always want to make sure that you get on top of anything, whether it's a blister, nutrition, hydration, um, or cramping if, if it is. And shoe <laughs> options too. It's always right. good to know that, Hey, at this next aid station, right? If I need to change shoes, I can either change into right my backup pair of my primary shoes or a different model or something that has less tread or more tread or a road shoe if you know that there's a more flatter section coming up. So having those options uh, and then socks as well, spare socks just in case. You make a good point there just about an ultra is a, it's a long day <laughs> so little problems can quickly spiral into bigger problems yes 
And so this is really all about being, as we've said before on this show, a problem-solving motherfucker. So that's right. Like, that's right. Like you, so you nip those problems in the bud before they become bigger issues that force you out of the race. One note on the footwear side: a lot of my friends in Maryland talk about losing toenails all the time. I don't understand that. I've never lost a single toenail because of road marathoning. I think part of that is because I have shoes that are big enough for my feet. I like to have a full thumb width at the end between my big toe and the end of the shoe. And I think, especially as somebody who's worked on the shoe floor (laughs) for a long time, people are chronically in shoes that are too small for them. And they think if they size up that there's going to be something wrong or they'll be too loose or whatever. But I would say encourage you for those road (laughs) marathoners as well as the trail folks, just give yourself at least a full thumbnail at the end. And then you won't lose those toenails that you always lose in your marathons. And the bulk of, I think the bulk of toenail loss is probably from impact to rocks and things like that, that you're out there on the trail that you're going to stub your toe on something, whether it's a rock or a root, um, and it's going to happen. And so that impact, regardless of how big your shoes are, right, it's just going to happen. Yeah, and I've never had toenail issues, but um, uh, you know, Stephen Moore, who runs on our Spectrum Race team, is another local trail running legend. It says toenails are optional. He has <laughs> none, which is awesome. You should ask him about it over a beer sometime. They're just yeah. He was born like that. <laughs> and it, you know the the like the shoe thing. It's really tougher. You know, if you're getting into ultra running, you, you it's a, something you've really got to try out because I like a thumb. I like a thumb width. But if you have too much room in the toe box, that can be an opportunity for a lot more friction. And so, but he, but I don't like my toes jabbing into the end of my shoe when I'm running downhill right. a lot. And so, uh, you, you know, it's going to be individually specific, mm-hmm. and you need to experiment. And home uh, foot care, right? Whether it's on a weekly basis or bi-weekly basis of, right, trimming your nails, right? Maybe taking a emery board or some fine grit sandpaper and just lightly sanding sanding your calluses you don't have to get them all the way down but emphasis on lightly yes yeah lightly you don't want to do it too much but just a little bit and that's a carryover from i was a uh, lightweight rower in college and so right we had calluses on our hands but part of the right deal is you got to maintain your your hands and uh mm-hmm. keeping them clean because you don't want them get to to get infected uh but the same thing applies to your feet Let's talk about muscle pain and cramping for a second because that was something else you mentioned. I would assume with hydrate or with cramping there's a hydration component. I want to set that aside for a second and just talk about this idea that your muscles are going to be in pain <laughs> doing work over long periods of time. How do you think about that? How do you prepare for it? Is it just normal, suck it up and deal? Or are there some specific things you can do to try to push that off as much as you can for me right that comes with what you signed up for (laughs) right you sign up for squamish 50 you know that towards the end of that uh there's going to be some pain it's going to hurt but this is what you paid good money for and be prepared to embrace it and say hey right right here i am my legs hurt oh yeah this is (laughs) I knew that this was going to happen, <laughs> right. right? This is no surprise. I signed up for this. I signed up for this. But I would say, what do you say, though, like Squamish 50, just as an example? I haven't run it, obviously, but I I plan to, and I've got to think about what that course looks like. You've got some pretty steep and intense uphills and downhills in that course. 
that are going to require muscle adaptation, right? Both in getting used to hiking some steep sections uphill as you gain altitude and then dealing with some steep downhill sections, which either of which I'm used to doing. And so if, if I'm facing a course with that kind of terrain, is it just about replicating that as closely as I can and getting out and training on those? Or are there other things I can do to prepare for that, that up and down? So my, my point, my perspective on this is that this is where for an ultra runner strength training is super important. So the more muscle mass that you have, the more you can dissipate the damage that's going to come. And so as you're spending more time engaged in that activity, you're going to accumulate more muscular damage, which is where a lot of your pain is coming from. And so the more muscle you have that can absorb that damage, the better off you're going to be. So for those of you that can't see Paul, he has huge legs, like giant <laughs> leg and hamstring mu- or uh, hamstring and quad muscles. And I think that ha- that helps him a lot, especially for the long run. And when I got into ultra marathoning, I weighed 190 pounds, like, and it was all muscle. I spent like five days a week in the gym on top of rock climbing, on top of running and swimming and biking. And so I've lost 30 pounds of that mass, but um, I still, you know, at 165 pounds, I'm a lot bulkier than most of the athletes that train with us here in the marathon groups. And, and I constantly work out. I mean, strength training is a big part of my program because I feel like it makes me stronger as a runner. It helps me endure the pain over, uh, especially the last kind of third of an ultra when I'm really like the pain is set in. I'm really bearing down and I'm trying to just close it out. And so that's where that's my biggest recommendation is to focus on that strength training and then just figure out how to suffer. And it's full body too. I know we mentioned that on our episode 94. It's a, it's a full body workout when you're hiking uphill. <laughs> right. Right. And let me ask you this, Paul, in, in your world, speaking about strength, what percentage of it, of the time you spend on strength is first of all, upper body versus lower body. So I'd be curious to get that mix. And then second of all, I'd be curious to get sort of the mix between power oriented stuff that might be higher weight, lower reps versus more body weight or functional mobility type of work. If, you know, if that's another spectrum. So give me a little color on your routine. Yeah. Earlier in my career, both triathlon and earlier in my ultra running, there was a um, a free weight component to my strength training. And I think the last two years, um, mainly by virtue of working with Jason's wife, Mallory, of really doing a high quality, not necessarily long, maybe 30 minute routine once a week that she mixes up. That's a mix of body weight, both upper and lower body but then also with some dumbbell free work or kettlebell work. So it's been a combination of that, but it's, it's at a period, typically it's either been midweek or later in the week for me, but it's a really good time where I'm a little bit fatigued, but I'm not totally fatigued uh, like I would be towards the end of the weekend. So it's a really good targeted routine that changes up each week. And that's really helped me, right, particularly these last couple months as I've gotten back into running to have that routine 
and uh, stimulate right the muscles and balance in different ways each week. So that's your primary mode now on the yes. strength side. As you've evolved that programming and particularly gone to the Mallory work, what's different? What what do you think you, is unique that's giving you more of an advantage now than maybe what you're doing eight, ten years ago? Certainly, right, balancing the workload and the rest load and all of that, I think. Pre Previously, I'd be doing a little more doubles, uh, and now really it's almost predominantly singles uh, each day with one at, at least one full day of rest each week, maybe with some active like walking or right easy cycling or easy swimming uh but yeah finding that balance that works for you as far as the workload and the rest load and then balancing that with the rest of your life right whether it's right your job if you have kids right travel family stuff things like that so where that fits in with the other stresses in your life but it's not crazy is what you're saying it's just consistent no. <laughs> yeah it's consistent and <laughs> even looking Right back at the last uh, couple months, you know, I've been in that eight to maybe 14 hour a week of running training time, not including, right, the strength work uh, for that, which I think compared to everybody else, it's not, that's not abnormal, right? So it's just building upon the whole body work that I've had uh, over a couple of decades. And uh, yeah, seeing that, seeing that really resonate and bubble up to the surface uh it's it's been confidence building to know that hey i can have a setback like that and then just get back on onto it gradually and and that fitness doesn't dis it doesn't disappear uh even after a two-month layoff let's talk about oh yeah one more point oh, yeah Jason. well so uh, one thing that i wanted to kind of follow up on that paul is um I know sometimes you and Mallory work on this idea of neuromuscular recruitment and figuring out like, can I get in touch with my body enough that I could actually sort of change muscular recruitment as I fatigued? I mean, is that something that you guys actively work on? Have you seen you, that you've been able to implement that in your training and your racing? Have there been any benefits from that? If she's doing that, she hasn't told me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I hope I'm glad that you mentioned that cause she's probably doing that. The method right, to the madness. Just by virtue. Um, <laughs> But no, we, right, right. We don't. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm sure it's part of her grandmaster plan. <laughs> uh, you, you so I just, I just put my faith um, in her. Right. Put my faith in, in Coop as my coach, and um, yeah, just execute and get done what you got to get done. Check the block. Uh, provide the feedback, and then adjust as necessary. Trust your coach. <laughs> in that case, your strength coach. Let's talk about heat for a second. And again, there ultimately is a hydration component to this, but a lot of, I think a, there's a misconception about heat, which is that hydration is the solution to heat management when really it's adapting to the heat and then staying cool by, in many cases, externally cooling your body that can really play a difference in a race where heat's a factor. Western States is obviously one of the the more prominent examples of a 100-miler where heat plays a huge role as you get into the, the valley on potentially 100-degree days there. And you're famous in Austin for your heat acclimation training. 
Talk a little bit about that. How do you prepare for the heat, and then how do you manage it on race day? Yeah, and and conversely, before I talk about the heat training, let's talk about Chattanooga 100, where you've got a drizzly, damp day, maybe 50 degrees, and it's raining on and off throughout the day. And so you're not worried about overheating. You're worried about staying warm, Yeah. right? Yeah. And even though mm-hmm. it's raining, so... Mm-hmm. Right, conscious decision of like every crude aid station. I'm changing my shirt, right? Changing my hat to dry hat. Uh, my crew swapped out my pack, so at least I wasn't in a soaking wet pack each time. And then, weather conditions permitting, grab a jacket if need be. So for me, thermal management that that was hey, I'm like right. Key for this is going to be. Staying warm or as warm as possible, stay as dry as possible, and then keep the calories coming in, right? Because you're just going to be burning a little more energy to stay warm. So particularly right now that we're in the winter season, that uh, thermal management of the right clothing choice. And even though I, I was wearing a shirt, I carried gloves. And really, I just wore gloves for maybe the first five miles. And then maybe at the turnaround at mile 51 because it was cold and coming down buckets of rain. So that's a side, the other side of that of mm-hmm. conditions of, hey, I've got I've to preserve my thermal energy and not get too cold because then you're less likely to drink and eat, uh, less likely to make good decisions, whether it's navigation or, right, you just go off course or something stupid. Yeah. So keeping, uh, yeah, the right mindset for that. Which in some races means also having the right gear, no which doubt. could range dramatically, especially if you're at a race in the mountains where you might be, I mean, even Western States is a perfect example of that, where you might have snow, snow on the top of the, that, uh, first peak. And then, you know, and then desert heat like conditions and other parts. So you got to make sure you've got all the gear for all of it. Which and, and and I think that's where people make bad decisions sometimes, right? Which ultimately might cost them in a in a race. Yeah, that's that logistical side of it, right? That third uh, logistical piece where hey, pack it, bring it, have it in the car so that your crew has it. Uh, better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Yeah. So let's talk about your heat training for the month of May and early part of June here in Austin gearing up for Western States, you'll be wearing layers and beanies and causing your wife Meredith all kinds of consternation about laundry and so forth. (laughs) So, so talk about what you've learned in your, your years of adapting to heat. Yes. That, that little extra stimulus, whether it's extra clothes, if you're outside, running or on a treadmill or getting in the sauna post run and it doesn't have to be for super long but maybe 30 minutes or so for one to two weeks beforehand before your race that's going to be a really good protocol uh, to get you in that ballpark to acclimate the best that you can for the conditions that you're uh, expecting and then on race day it seems like also with Western States, we talked about in those moments, you know, like the river crossing, you, know, you always make it a point to submerge yourself there on a hot day to 
cool the body down so that when you get to that next stage of the race, you're you're in a decent spot versus those that might just kind of like splash a little water on themselves. They might feel good, but they don't necessarily make a difference. That may not make a difference in their core body temperature. But talk about that and how do you manage heat on race day itself? Yes, and for West Estates in particular, right, Rocky Chucky River Crossings Mile 78, so it's late later in the race uh even for the front of the field right the sun's starting to set it's still hot and the bulk of the heat management comes much much earlier in the race uh very very early grabbing as much ice as you can get it in your hat get it in your bandana put it in your arm coolers if you're wearing that if you have a pack that has a little pouch in the back you can put some ice back there because then it'll just melt and keep your uh, torso as cool and wet a- as possible. Um, light colored clothing helps as well uh, for that. And uh, yeah, keep eating and drinking, right? Because there's both the external uh, cooling effect, but then there's also the internal as well to stay hydrated. Where do you stand on uh, sunscreen? Like so, in in a in a hot condition, hot race or an exposed race, are, are you clothes or sunscreen? I'm gonna go. Well, certainly starting the race right with sunscreen, particularly right nose and ears and things like that. Uh, a really hot race, I'm gonna have arm coolers on, right? So I'm gonna be covered there and probably a short sleeve shirt uh, or a sleeveless shirt. So a little bit of sunscreen on the on the neck and the uh, shoulders. Okay. Uh, but typically don't reapply un- unless really need to and going to be out in blazing exposed sun for a long time, which I don't think I've done a race like that. It'd be different, right, if you were out on a track, right, running through the middle right. of, uh, of the sun out there and you might you might need to get that or bad water, right, for those those that are out there, that sunscreen and, and that reflective sun for the pavement can be really powerful. Right, there's stories of people getting the roof of their mouth or the inside of their noses sunburned because of the reflection coming up from the pavement, and so you've got to you've got to prepare for that. Yeah, similar to the problems we see in mountaineering. Yeah, so I I don't like sunscreen, um, and I've had problems with just not being able to sweat. I'm a prolific sweater, and so I've had like nearly blacked out out on runs before when I did apply sunscreen training here in the summer, and so I wear long sleeve dry wick loose fitting shirts i like something that has a zipper kind of down the chest for a long time i ran in uh cycling jerseys because that was like the best thing i could find and uh, that way i I can stay cool enough i could give you how to shit anyway and so you get the evaporative cooling effect of the clothes soaking up all that sweat coming off of you uh, and then you don't have to worry about uh pores clogging or anything like that but the but the face and and the kind of ears and neck are good to protect yeah a little bit of sunscreen yeah i gravitate towards uh yeah natural sunscreen uh high percentage zinc oxide think sport here in austin makes a great product for that and uh it's thick but it's also moisturizing as well so uh particularly if you're in a dry environment out running it always helps to right just not have chap skin out there it's just a, a little comfort factor that helps as well for that and uh it's nice also having little blister packs in drop bags just in case you do need it right that are easy to carry and you can even put them in a pack if you're doing a multi-day 
uh, race or just have a long stretch between aid stations where you think you might need it. Yeah. So you mentioned hydration, nutrition as a factor here. So let's let's segue to that because we definitely need to spend some time on it. First of all, let's just set the table. Obviously, there's a tactical element here, but but I sort of want to make help people understand why this is so important. And certainly there's the obvious, which is that you're running a long way. You need calories to fuel that. So that seems fairly obvious. But the reason it's complicated is because things happen to your stomach when you're exerting yourself for these many hours that I don't think it's it's that's that's I should say is it probably impossible to understand until you get there <laughs> where your stomach basically stops working in which case you can have all sorts of outcomes you know nausea vomiting inability to take in calories for long periods of time inability to really take in proper hydration for periods of time so that you basically run out of gas and so talk about that what's happening when things go wrong with nutrition and hydration so I'll jump in here. Um, so this is important uh, because I think, well, maybe the reason we're highlighting this is this comes to the top of the list of reasons why racers drop out of races. So this is one of the most common ailments that runners run into and when the most common reason why they drop out of a race. So we'll dig in on this. So, yes, obviously you need food to get through the race, but what you also need is water. Your body cannot digest food without water and digestion is one of the lowest items on your body's list of priorities when it comes to how you use water so there are four key physiologic functions that water serves in your body you have blood volume so your, your, the blood plasma in your blood is the primary reservoir you have for sweating. So thermal regulation that we talked about just a minute ago um, is managed through sweating. And so your body's taking water from your blood plasma uh, in order to support that thermal reg regulation process. But then also um, you need to keep your blood volume high so that you can keep your blood pressure as low as possible so that it's easy it's easiest for your heart to transport oxygen to working muscles. So as your body takes water from the blood plasma to support thermoregulation, your blood volume drops, your heart rate raises because your, your heart's working harder to pump oxygen to working muscles. So you have to kind of keep that in mind. So that's, so blood volume number two, then thermoregulation. And then the third on the list of priorities for water in your body is, uh, gut motility and digestion so that is basically moving food throughout your body. Um, and so if you get hot enough, or your blood pressure gets low enough, your body uh, will just quit supporting the digestive process. And so uh, it will also, if you get dehydrated enough, quit supporting the thermal regulation process, which is where heat stroke comes in and you can get into really severe trouble from that. And you know, then down at the bottom of the list is uh, waste removal. So also, if you get dehydrated enough, you put yourself at the risk of kidney trouble uh it may be as bad as kidney failure and so you want to make sure that so this is why water nutrition they're synergistic they go together these strategies have to be synced um and so we can kind of like get into how you how you manage all of that but that's when it becomes important and this really becomes important after sort of five hours when when you're going to run out of 
food food and water or energy and water in your body and so you really have to think what is the long game how am i going to fuel myself and how am i going to keep this whole sort of physiologic system that's dependent on water running all day long okay so basically it's more complicated than just <laughs> getting enough energy to run the whole damn thing correct Wh- which also means that your finish, your ability to finish and feel okay at any point during this thing is highly dependent on your strategy. Clearly, you have to have a strategy. Clearly, you also have to train to execute that strategy. So, let's just use me as an example. Training for a 50-miler, my first ultra, next August, Squamish in... Squamish, by the way, is just north of Vancouver, between Vancouver and Whistler. How would you guys instruct me... To one, think about preparing a nutrition strategy for that day where I might be out there for 12 to 15 hours potentially. And two, then how do I train for that? And which comes first? Do I think about the training first or do I think about the plan first and work backwards? Paul, help me out. For me, if it was me, I'd backward plan, right? This is comes from my army planning, training uh, of backward planning, right? So you start with your goal event right and then and, and the backwards plan right what are the 50k trail races that you're going to do for preparation right are there some 25ks or 30ks or right a mix of distances that you're going to do prior to that in the month two month three months four months before that because those are going to be great opportunities to practice whatever plan hydration nutrition plan that you're going to use on race day right and it's not just one plan but you also have to have the backup plan in case plan A goes to goes to shit. <laughs> and then, oh, yeah, what happens if plan B doesn't work? All right, so <laughs> what's plan C, right? And then, okay, what if that doesn't work? All right, well, I guess we're just drinking ginger ale and water <laughs> or Coke and Mountain Dew and just making it to the <laughs> hoping, finish line. Hoping right? which, which, hey, that's, if, that's, if that's what it takes to get you to the finish line, soup and water, right, ramen and, hey, that's do, good too. Do what you gotta but, do, but have that thought ahead of time so that you know. Okay, if this doesn't work, right? If this combination of food and drink isn't working for me, uh, right? The sweet, right? They say the sweet, the salty, and the savory, right? That if you can incorporate a couple of those options each each time, right? You, then that's going to increase your chance for success uh, because you're not going to get that flavor fatigue of eating it or drinking the same thing over and over and over again. Some people can do it, right? They can they can take the same gel flavor over and over and over again, but some people just, they need some variety. So Squamish, 50 miles, let's say it takes me 14 hours to do it. It's a challenging course. It might take less, it might take more. Well, what would be plan A? What would that look like from a hydration standpoint and nutrition st- and standpoint? What should I be drinking? Every hour, what should I be eating to sustain myself for that time period? Okay, so, um, so we'll start with this assumption: you, uh, your dietary paradigm, lifestyle <laughs> is, is carbohydrate centric, right? right. So, yeah. Um, so that we're going to work on like carb carbohydrate or glycogen being your primary fueling source. Yeah. And so then the first thing that we have to say is: okay, you need to understand your daily hydration status. Okay. Um, and so. Well, for, so I coach my athletes on using a sweat rate tracker 
um, to make sure that they can understand their daily hydration status. And there are a few different things that you can do just kind of anecdotally to track this. But then you can also, you know, sort of once a week or a couple of times a month, actually measure your sweat rate. And I like to do this throughout a year at least so that you have a good idea of seasonality. So like how does the temperature, how does the humidity level affect your sweat rate? And, you know, in 14 hours, you're going to be exposed to a lot of different elements, cold, hot, maybe humid, maybe dry. And so you want to have a good idea over the course of that race, how much water at any given time should I drink? Because you don't want to drink too much. You don't want to drink too little. And it needs to match kind of your calorie intake. Um, So then the other thing to consider is electrolytes. And so then it becomes a matter of how do I want to get my calories? How do I want to get my electrolytes throughout the day? Do I just like to drink water and eat food and maybe take salt pills? Or do I like tailwind where I can get both electrolytes and calories and then maybe balance that with some solid food because tailwind won't always satiate the appetite, even though it might be all the calorie intake that you need. Um, And so then Really, the key is, so your nutrition strategy is always going to be highly individualized and it's going to have to do with your palate um, and what kind of foods you like and how those sit in your stomach. So then what I coach athletes on is to think about your long runs and that time out on the trail as a laboratory. It is a, every one of those runs is a lab experiment and you need to, just like any good scientist would do, control your variables. So don't try one day, I'm going to do like tailwind and some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and then a little bit of water. And then the next day I'm going to do all water, some salt tabs and Epic bars, meat bars or something like that, because then you have no idea what variable influences what. And so you kind of try some routine, pick something at the beginning, try that for a few runs. And if all goes well, you can kind of keep playing with that and then start playing with like palate variety, introduce a new food type or introduce caffeinated versus non-caffeinated tailwind and then kind of see how that works so keep a log so meticulously track everything that you're trying and how you might think it affects you and if you have a negative effect at one point try that again can i replicate that in my next experiment uh, and then go from there and just keep tweaking on the margins through your experimentation that all sounds really annoying (laughs) 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 for for this road for this road yeah. marathoner who likes to do long runs without That's nutrition. That's what you signed up for, Chris. <laughs> without nutrition. Get used to it. <laughs> but it also sounds complicated for somebody who's not an engineer. <laughs> so, but I'm going to do it. I'm committed to it. What? But what are the rules of thumb? I mean, because, you know, some things I hear about or think about is, one, you should be hydrating early and often. So probably taking in something constantly relatively throughout the day. You know, I know, you know, Paul, I've seen you run it with two bottles at times where you're kind of constantly sipping from both. I also know that if you're going to deal with, get the calorie balance properly, you need to be fairly consistent with your intake and not necessarily just stocking up at aid stations, but finding ways to kind of get trickles of calories throughout the day. So, so what are my rules of thumb in, in that I can use as a bedrock for my experimentation? Should we both go after this one? Yeah. All right. Um, so one thing is, and I think Paul would agree with me on this. I take control of my own hydration nutrition strategy. I don't eat off of aid station food. And okay. I know this is uh, as a race director, I feel so bad about this cause I know we serve nothing but junk food at our aid <laughs> stations and everybody swears that's what they want, but I don't eat that. I wouldn't rely on that. And I'm not going to turn over my race day performance to whatever somebody has at their aid station. So you want to have your own strategy. 
Uh, and then, you, you know, based on what you find from sweat rate tracking, you'll know how much fluid you need to take in per hour. Um, and I just kind of, I, I, I go off of that when I do eat, you want to get down something like, you know, four to six ounces of water with say 120 calories of food. I try to space out my calorie intake. You're looking at, you know, our bodies can process two to 300 calories per hour, depending on how efficient you are at digesting and metabolizing. And so, and then you want to try to get, it can get really into the weeds on how do I break that down between carbohydrates and proteins and fats, but rough general rule of thumb, 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour, um, two to 300 calories. And then your hydration is going to be specific to how you sweat. What's your sweat rate? What have you learned from tracking your sweat rate and how hydrated were you going into the day? And then what are your environmental conditions like? And really kind of thinking through all of that. And so uh, I know that both uh, Paul and I definitely like map out that what that whole day looks like. What specifically do I want to eat? And it's not like I just want a bonk breaker bar here, but like I want the cookies and cream bonk breaker bar and I want the uh, Mandarin orange non-caffeinated tailwind. And and it's specifically broken down at every aid station. I turn that over to my crew so they know exactly what to deliver to me when I have to think about it because I don't want to spend any mental energy thinking about my nutrition hydration strategies after the day starts. I'm just executing on what I've practiced in the lab for the six months prior. It's all in the binder, right? Paul? It's all in the binder. And then you can write, break it down into little index cards and put those in the Ziploc bags that you have packed for each of your uh, aid stations. Have right. you done that yet, Chris? <laughs> Working on the index cards. All right, we'll get that in the Sharpie ready for you. <laughs> <laughs> so are you are you taking food from aid stations? What does your strategy typically look like? Some of those aid stations, right? Some of the aid stations that there's no crew there. And so, I, right, you might be forced to uh, take, for sure, right, you're going to take water there. Yeah. If you're going to have soda, right, you might as well take, take some soda yep. there. Uh, I've definitely taken some soup uh, at some of those. I know at one of the drop bag aid stations at Chattanooga 100, uh, I took soup on the way back because it was dark and cold and some hot soup sounded fantastic and it's salty so i know that it sits well we're there on the way out i think i grabbed a little quarter of a peanut butter and and jelly sandwich just because i was craving a little bit of food but at at the crude ones right meredith and brian my other crew member right had little pieces of cut up pizza for me to grab because i knew right some savory and salty food was going to sit well um with my race nutrition so, uh, yeah, having I'm I'm with Jason, right? Definitely have it in your mind of exactly what you want, but also have backup plan yeah. for, hey, if if this isn't working. All right. Let's go to this as a backup plan. It's a great reminder. Yes. I'll, I'll have alternatives because you you might run out of interest in certain things. You want flavor variety and that sort of. Yeah. You never know when you want a salted potato and some avocado instead yeah, of a stroop waffle. <laughs> totally. And carrying like one thing, carrying one of those little Ziploc uh, snack bags with you, right? You could easily put it in your pocket or your pack. Because if you do want to grab something at, at the aid station and not necessarily eat it right then and there, you could just put it in that little Ziploc uh, bag and take it with you right and it's not going to get everywhere you don't have to hold it in your hand so you can save it for later and nibble on it over time so that you're not getting that huge calorie uh hit all at once and then chris i would counsel you to really think outside of the box about what constitutes 
a fuel source. So it doesn't have to come in a package or be sold as like an engineered endurance fuel. It could, real food goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> an ultra, and you never know where you're going to be like, I just want pancakes, eggs, and bacon right now. <laughs> and you just might have that at mile 80 or, yeah. or 30. Well, or yeah, I've, I've embraced that before. When I did my first half Ironman, I had Skittles on the run because that sounded good to me versus gels. So I found another sugar source. So I get that. A couple of things I'm hearing. One, flavor variety. Two, also salt, sweet, savory variety as well because you're yeah. going to get sick of having constantly just sweet stuff or constantly just salty or savory stuff. So balance there. And you know, I would assume, Paul, you know what's going to be at the aid stations too. So you're able to say, okay, here's what they're going to have. Here's how that fits or not into my plan. And, you know, I might choose to plan to take something from the aid station because I know it's going to be there or just say, hey, I need to have my own stuff at that one because my crew will be there. Yeah, most races will publish an aid station food list. <clears throat> how do you need how do you how do you adapt your body's ability to take in more calories per hour? Because I know that's an issue, right? It's you say two to three hundred calories, but you have to train your body to, to accept that much in an hour so how does that is that just a matter of practicing or is there something else you can do to get better at taking in those calories i think your body is going to tell you when you're taking in too many calories right either you're just not going to feel well it's gonna right come up or you're going to have to dash into the woods because you've been just taking in too many calories throughout the day and uh it's going to tell you when you're at that end of the spectrum so to speak. So then you're going to get those cues. I mean, so that's another point to make here is that even if you dial it in perfectly, it may not be working for you for whatever reason. The body responds uniquely or the conditions are different than you might have expected. Suddenly you feel bad or you can't keep food down or you don't want what you have in your pack and, and or you're getting low on fuel as a result. So how do you deal with those? How do you problem solve nutrition and hydration in the race itself when something starts to not go right. Yeah, certainly stop doing whatever it was that caused that condition in the first first place. And then try and get your body back to that level of homeostasis where things are kind of settled down, whether it's just sipping water for some period of time. And certainly that first step when things go south, uh, slow down, right? take a walk break, even if you need to just stop and get your heart rate down, whether that's a couple minutes, whether that's five minutes, whether that's 10 minutes, and then gradually start moving again, reintroduce some water, um, make sure that that's staying down. And then if maybe at that point, start introducing some light calories. Uh, so there's definitely that reset mentality of okay things went south stop doing whatever it was that got me here reset get the heart rate down get the breathing rate down so that your body can catch up to whatever it is that you're asking of it because you can work through it i mean i think that's the thing just like a bad patch in a marathon where you felt badly but now all of a sudden you feel good again same thing can happen in a race like that and you just can't let those little twists and turns stop you, you know, as you said, reset, <laughs> get back to homeostasis, 
Is there something there about not wanting to stop, wanting to keep moving? You know, is that bad to stop? Um, you know, because I've also heard of those situations where somebody might come into an aid station either dehydrated or maybe in some cases too cold, have to sit there for an hour to kind of recalibrate before they get back out there. Is that a no-no or is that something to consider in the solution set? No, that's definitely one of those that's in the solution toolkit of, okay, I overextended myself in one form or, or fashion. I need to take a hard reset here, sit down, take for, okay, I'll go back to Chattanooga 100, right? At the turnaround point, mile 51, I've got a 15-minute lead on second and about an 18-minute lead on third. Uh, 13 miles later, mile 64, that third-place guy, William Ansick, he's two minutes behind me, right? So he bridged up past second place. He's mm -hmm. two minutes behind me at, at mile 64. So he definitely extended himself a lot in that 13 miles because I wasn't – I wasn't soft pedaling <laughs> you were, you were in that section. Yeah. And uh, right after the fact, right, he had to he had to sit there at that aid station, get warm, get dry, kind of get some calories on board, and ulti ultimately finish third, right? So Sal, right, it could have been yeah. a, a DNF right there, but he and his crew, they problem solved, got him back on course, kept him, kept him warm, kept him fed, kept him hydrated and he finished third so hats off right to William and his crew for managing that effort uh mid-race and being able to right make it to the finish line and yeah yeah, yeah podium you know, the second place finisher at superior 50 this year took a 30 minute nap on the side of the trail went out too hard mm -hmm. uh challenging one of our rogue virtual athletes Colin Hagen and blew up took a half an hour nap woke up it's still finished second place, so like you could definitely recover. One thing I would say about nutrition and hydration, and if you get in trouble, what you do, it's much easier to get out of a tight spot with with an, a poor nutrition strategy or approach or like tactical mistakes on the day. If you get a little bit behind on nutrition, you can climb out of that hole because sugar, your body's just going to burn it quick, right? But if you get behind on hydration, it's a really tough hole to climb out of and that's kind of like the crux of your day is managing that hydration strategy and overall hydration status because if you get dehydrated you may not ever get back from it ever <laughs> <laughs> you will die so we'll emphasize here this idea that this is an individual journey i think understanding your sweat rate is the biggest part of that on the hydration side and then knowing what you know your palate sort of can handle in terms of calories on the nutrition side and then experimenting with that now jason you mentioned sort of the paradigm question of you know if you're a carb paradigm person versus a fat adapted person that might change the dynamics of your nutrition plan on race day and obviously there are ultra runners that come from both camps you know paul and you tend to be more in that carb that carb-centric world versus others like Zach Bitter, more of a fat-adapted world. That's something you've been experimenting with and moving towards, Jason. So talk about that, at least in terms of the fat-adapted world. How does how does that change the approach from a nutrition standpoint? Yeah, and this will actually affect your training as well as your racing and then your overall nutrition strategy. And uh, basically, uh, 
if you're when you're fat adapted, you're mostly aerobic training because your body can easily burn fat and oxygen. And then if in an anaerobic state, your body is dependent on glycogen as its primary fuel source. So if you don't have glycogen stores in your body, then it's going to be hard to operate at that level. And so that from like kind of a training perspective and an overall nutrition perspective, that's something that affects you. Now, um, there's a lot more going into kind of studying the idea of strategic carbon take for fat adapted athletes and using that both prior to hard workouts and then uh, prior to and intra race uh, consuming carbohydrates. But, so, um, you know, I haven't done a lot. Uh, I haven't raced as a fat adapted runner, so I haven't really built like a solid nutrition strategy for that part of it. I, I've done some research on it and you're still going to consume carbohydrates, but in theory, you need a lot less fuel. So our bodies can store about 2000 calories worth of glycogen that's going to come from complex and simple carbohydrates but our body you know has easily 10,000 calories of fat an almost sort of infinite store in theory of fuel you can fuel on and so with ultra running you're spending so much more of your time in an aerobic state and so if you can burn fat and still perform at sort of a high level in an aerobic state then that that can be a great way to go and so even if you're on a carb centric diet, it's important to kind of note that you uh, you you have the potential to still work on fat adaptation, uh, maybe as like a special block in your training or something to help you feel better on fat. And I know this is probably something that you play with Paul because I've seen that you use Vespa or at least have in the past, which can help sort of accelerate the body's ability to burn fat during exercise. And so, um, but if you're not well fat adapted, then your body is primarily going to want to consume glycogen, even if you're in an aerobic state or you're passing in between aerobic and anaerobic states. There are also concepts of metabolic flexibility we won't get into, but um, so that at a high level, I guess, hopefully that covers it and is not too much rambling. Are you, if you're in that state, does that mean you're taking in fewer calories because your body is supplying them through your fat stores or does that just mean the mix of food that you're taking is different on race day you would likely eat a lot less if you're fat adapted you, you'd at least have the opportunity to so it's not uncommon for a fat adapted athlete to run a 50k without any nutrition so uh, i'll give you another example i did a 20 mile long run quality workout this past sunday 20 miles with 12 miles at marathon goal pace so i was running about 620 624 for two six mile blocks and i had nothing but a liter of water on the day and i felt great um and so you can definitely i don't know how long you can get away without eating i imagine that even zach better is probably eating something in a hundred mile race and a 50 mile race yep. um and so yeah and the reality i think is right that those guys at that end of the spectrum of that right when it comes to race nutrition they're still they're still putting putting away the carbs yeah uh yeah. right because they are running at a high end of their uh aerobic abilities uh for that even though right granted compared to top speed but right they're doing it for that long of of duration and even right for me right day-to-day -day nutrition doesn't look that different from right what a zach or jeff browning 
right, day-to-day nutrition looks like, right? Really good protein, right? Salads, a little bit of carb here and there, but it's, right, ebbs and flows with the training and racing uh, training plan and where it is in the block of training. So it's just eating clean, eating healthy. Um, Yeah, so it's, and it's, it's a great convergence because as your training gets better and you get more fit, right that the nutrition seems to fall into place right and your body tells you tells you what you need and and what you don't need yeah that's a good point listen to the cues yeah Yeah. those cravings and those cravings can tell you something not only in your training as you're experimenting but also on race day they'll tell you maybe what you need i want to also Go back to the point you made, Paul, of doing some prep races for, for Squamish, whether it be a 50K or 25K or 30Ks, because, yes, it's about practicing your nutrition and training, but also practicing on race day where you have aid stations, where you have a setup that will be more like race conditions so you can kind of practice the logistical sides of, of food as well, potentially with crew members out there helping you out. Yeah, and it's easy, right? Right to think that a twenty mile run in training, right? You could do that without, without any taking on any any nutrition. But then, right, try do that race day, right? right see, right? It's like, oh my god, I need something. Yeah, right. That's always the test, right? How does it go on race day? <laughs> yeah, right. Because it's a totally test. different set of conditions, and particularly if you're competitive, right? And you need to surge or you need to match somebody's tempo or uh in my case right draft off off of chris <laughs> and uh stay on his hip yeah i'm also in marathon training right now so i'm kind of like trying to prepare myself a little bit more for less food because as an ultra runner i'm constant i'm used to just eating and drinking prolifically when i run long yeah. and it's i don't need to do that so i'm kind of like trying to adapt this very specific uh-huh. training then and, and what's cool right has been reading some of the cim um just race reports right of those that punch their qualifying ticket um and then right watching kipchoge at berlin right taking his bottles at very very frequent basis i think they're taking it more frequently than they used to historically at the elite level of marathoners yeah right and and they're running for two hours right almost two hours or just above two hours but they're taking in right small doses at higher frequencies than they used to yeah, it's important. It can make or break your race, as we alluded to. So as we wrap this episode, hopefully those, including me, who might be thinking about trail or have signed up for their first trail, have have a few more tips. Final final messages for the, the new ultra runner out there. Any final things that we didn't cover? I'll start with you, Jason. Uh, I will just go back to... For me, the key point is to remember that it's going to be like your, your training, your race strategy is going to be specific to you and kind of your lifestyle, your racing style. But remember that your long runs, all that time on the trail, it's a laboratory. You're constantly experimenting. And uh, so enjoy the short runs on the trail. Disconnect, which is a kind of our common theme in the case for the trail. But treat those long runs as your, your key to glory. Yeah, yeah, right on. Eat, eat and drink whatever makes you feel and run fast, right? My freshman year uh, rowing coach said that. It's like, hey, coach, what do we eat before a race? Whatever makes you feel fast. (laughs) 
right? And if that doesn't work, seek professional help. <laughs> right? Get advice. Find a good dietitian that knows their stuff. And um, yeah, because you may just be allergic or have sense have sensitivities to certain things that um, might be challenging to figure out. So you can waste your time, right? Just chasing your tail on that for a long time, but uh, in some cases, seek professional help. The final thing I will add is that on race day, solve those problems and just keep moving forward. You know, I think a lot of it comes back to the mental side, which we didn't really talk about, which is to say, look, once you start that at that starting line, you're resolved to get to the finish and do whatever you need to do problem-solving-wise to get there. And really that problem-solving starts even before that in training. But just keep moving forward, as my now five-year-old daughter keeps telling me for some odd reason. <laughs> just keep moving forward. Here, here. Squamish 50 so, is coming up. Yeah. It'll be here before keep you know it. Keep moving forward, Daddy. And so, put it in the binder. <laughs> exactly. So there you go. Well, thank you guys for joining me, Paul and Jason, again. This has been fascinating, and I've got some homework to do in building my binder for Squamish next year, and we'll keep you guys posted on my journey to that race as we go for those that want to follow along. Of course, thanks to everybody for listening. This has been episode 105 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com. Or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.